If you have a Bible with you today, uh, please open it to John chapter 12. We'll be reading verses 12 through 19 here shortly. The last miracle that Jesus did was back in John chapter 11, but it casts its shadow far and wide, even through our verses this morning. The miracles of Jesus set up by John are nothing if not a raw display of power by Jesus. It seems that the entire first half of John is set up for this, to show Jesus as a man of power. Even in his explanation of where he has come from and what he has done, he explains that in terms of God giving him power, of being one and unified with God, which is nothing more than assuming a stand of power. I'm not sure exactly how the ancients viewed these miracles. Perhaps they didn't think too much about how they were done or what was actually being done. Maybe they just thought it was more akin to magic. But when you... And when I sit down and think through the nature of what Jesus is doing, these miracles are quite naturally stunning. They're just amazing evidences of one who is incredibly powerful. Even the, even the easiest one, perhaps. I don't know what, how you classify miracles from hardest to easiest, but I, I would assume that maybe water to wine might be the easiest. It's not acting on somebody who is living. It doesn't require anything but changing molecules. But even in that, there is a tremendous amount of glory that is found in being able to do such a frankly simple thing. We've been making wine since man saw its first fermented grape. And we can do many things. Anytime we see something done in nature, mankind always says, yeah, we can do that better in a lab, right? So man is is growing organs in a lab now that we can take from the lab and put into people. We are amazing at that. Several years ago, I read, uh, several years, it was, I say that, it was probably a, more than a decade ago, I read that scientists at the University of Chicago were already attempting to grow meat in a lab because of the nature of having so much cattle to provide beef for us and its impact on global warming. So they were going to grow steak in a lab. Okay? That's a marvelous achievement that will benefit no one because I'm not sure you can make money by paying people to eat food because no one's eating that for free. And no one's going to be charged to eat food grown in a lab. No one wants science meat. Even even Mr. Hot Dog is above that. So the point is we are incredibly capable of taking complex things and, and doing them in sort of this manufactured way. It's interesting that wine is not one of those things. We grow wine and we make wine in one way, the same way we've done it for thousands and thousands of years. Exact same way. Wine is an incredibly complex thing. It's got millions of different molecules. The basic idea is very simple. You take sugar and it becomes alcohol, but that's not what actually happens in a vat of wine. There's millions of molecules compact in there in different amounts and in different flavors to provide the quality of wine. I wonder what was going through Jesus' mind when he did this. Was he cognizant of every individual molecule? Because you remember when he made the water into wine, they didn't say, oh, here's some pretty average wine. They said, no, no, this is the good wine. Did he know every molecule that he was changing? Did he know the right amounts of every single one of those to be placed in those vats to make it into good wine? Or did he just say, hey, be good wine, and it knew what it meant? This is likely the easiest one. Did Jesus make all those atoms brand new? Did he change the atoms from hydrogen and oxygen to be more complex carbohydrates? What did he do in making that water into wine? And not only that, he heals 
lame limbs. He fixes nerves and builds muscle by speaking a word. He restores the neurons and sight of a man born blind who never had them working. He didn't fix them. He made them work for the first time. He multiplied the complex structure of fish and loaves. And who knows what it means to have raised a man from the dead. All this is to say that absolutely nothing that Jesus does in any of these miracles is anything but abject, raw power. No one is like this Jesus. No one can do the things that he does. And this is why the appeal of him being king is so strong. This is on the forefront of everyone's mind. This is why when we come to the passage today of making him king, it naturally flows off of these miracles, just like they wanted to in chapter 6. Now they proclaim him as king. Because as the strongest and mightiest of all men, certainly he is one who deserves to be king. Kings are where the power lied in ancient times, not in parliaments, not in congresses, only in kings. And Jesus, as a man who is powerful and capable of so much good, is fit above all people to be king. And today we get to see how the crowd, how Jesus, and even those Pharisees, again, respond to this idea of Jesus being king. So if you would, read with me. Beginning in verse 12. The word of our God. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is the word of our God. Let us then think through what we ought to do, what ought our response to be to Jesus being king and being crowned as king, his triumphal entry as king into Jerusalem. Today, first, I would like you to recognize the coming of the king. Recognize the coming of the king. Recognize simply who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Now, verses 17 through 18 are incredibly important in this because they tell us why this great crowd was present. Those who witnessed this great miracle of Lazarus coming out of the grave couldn't keep their mouths quiet about it. Okay? It's just like a child telling you a joke. If you laugh at that joke, you should be prepared to hear that joke another 30 to 40 times. The same way politicians work. If any politician gets a laugh, that joke's coming out again. Okay? So this was the ultimate water cooler talk. This wasn't about who made the play. This wasn't about, did you see that TV show? It wasn't about anything like this. This was a miracle happened, and they didn't stop talking about it. The idea here is that they didn't just tell one person. They just kept telling people, did you hear about the miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus? So when the crowd hears about the miracle, and it's testified to them time and time again, well, they do some very deliberate things. This whole setup wasn't, Passive. This wasn't a mob mentality. John doesn't portray it like that, where they just kind of get caught up in the moment. This seems very, very deliberate. People aren't just going along with the flow. It didn't just turn out this way somehow. 
the actions we have here show a quite deliberate way of looking at Jesus. They took, they cried out. The palm branches are important. They didn't just find the first thing laying on the ground and say, hey, let's pick these up and wave them at him. It was important. It is not told from the perspective of Jesus. It's not saying that the crowds, when they saw Jesus coming, happened to be doing these things, but they purposefully did these things. They picked up palm branches. These aren't to cool him off or to fan him, but they're something of a national symbol. The closest thing we probably have to these are just flags. It's like picking up an American flag. It's not just a piece of fabric. We mean something by it. It symbolizes something. Earlier in the history of Jerusalem and in the history of the Jews, they were used as Simon the Maccabees drove the Syrians out of the temple. They were used and waved during that as a sign of victory over him. When they rededicated the temple again, they were used in that. They were even stamped, palm branches were stamped on the coins of the time. It was clearly a national symbol. So they were not simply there to be picked up and used. They were a symbol of what was going on. They were not just hailing a man and shouting praise to God. They were giving him praise for the wonderful miracle he had performed. That's true, but that's not all. They were seeing him as a national hero, one who was to lead them as a nation again. And to this end, they saw his potential as a king of that nation. Part on, parcel of that is their announcement of Psalm 118, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. This is a powerful piece of scripture that the early church fastened itself to and Judah, uh, Jews fashioned themselves to as well. Psalm 118 is a psalm of, of victory as the Davidic king seems to be coming back from the, the battlefield and is claiming the victory over his enemies. The passage that is quoted from here comes from verses 25 and 26 of that psalm. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Hosanna is simply a transliteration of the first part of it. Save us now. It's just a cry of salvation going up to God. Save us, we pray, as the ESV says. The Davidic king Hezbron returned from a particularly harrowing battle. He calls the first part of Psalm 118 for the whole nation to ring a shout of the God's faithfulness, to remind them of his faithfulness. Remember the steadfast love of the Lord. It is always there. His steadfast love endures forever. Israel, the house of Aaron, and all those who fear the Lord are to shout that God's love is shown forever. The question becomes then, in the psalm, why are they doing this? This is how the psalm opens, but why does it open that way? It opens that way because in verses 10 through 13, we find out that that battle that he is coming back from was an incredibly narrow victory and something that was massively, massively done only by the hand of the Lord. Verses 10 through 13, David says, All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. 
His emphasis there is not on one particular nation, but all of the nations. It's almost like this Davidic king was standing against the world and all of them surrounded them and he came closer and closer and they were close to pushing him off the edge. But God saved him. God fought through him and God delivered him in victory. So now as he returns, he returns only because the Lord God was with him and the steadfast love of the Lord was upon him forever. The emphasis here is clearly on the nations They threatened and they provoked the king. They were about to destroy the king of the Jews, but he triumphed over them. The Davidic king was able to beat them back, and the nations are subdued through this. Now then, it's important that we see how people recognize Jesus as being king here. This isn't just a political movement. Oftentimes we think that the Jews considered him as simply a king to be crowned and then win victories over their enemies, but it's not quite that. It is more complicated than that. They clearly thought that he was fit to be king because God was with him. It isn't just a political thing. It is also a religious thing. They believe that God has given them Jesus so that he would reign over them and provide victory over all of their enemies. It is not just that he is a king, but that he is the king. They weren't just waiting for a ruler to come back. They had rulers. They weren't just waiting for a king from David's line to show up. They had kings. They were waiting for the one that God would send to them to demolish all of their enemies and to reestablish the kingdom of God. He is God's man to rule over them, and he has a special place in God's redemptive plan for the nation. He is, in that sense, both as important as David and as Moses. For as Moses, he is going to deliver his nation from bondage. And as David, he is going to rule over them as king. If you put both of them together, you get something of the importance of this coming Davidic king. And note then that this is something of a shot across the bow at these leaders. Let's assume for a second that the people knew very well very well what they were doing when they said this. They knew very well the context of this psalm. They should have because this is sung regularly among the Jewish people. The leaders had made themselves clear back in John 11, verse 57, at the very end of those verses. The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, they should let them know so that they might arrest him. I don't think anyone was confused about why they wanted to arrest him. It wasn't to arrest him to tell him what a wonderful job he's doing. They wanted to arrest him, to imprison him, and then likely to kill him. The crowd had other passages that they could have gone to to hail Jesus as a king coming in. And therefore, I think that this is very particular and very important that they pick this one out. It seems to fight back at the very heart of the Israelites' leaders' fear. In chapter 11, verse 48, the leaders make their complaint known, make their problems known. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. If he gets too large of a following, people are going to come out to him. And when they come out to him, the Romans are going to know. And when there's a commotion, Romans don't like that. What Rome wants is for you to do your thing. We'll do our thing. That's fine. But the second that you start to get riled up, we're going to come and crush you. And the leaders knew that. And they said, if this is going on with Jesus, it's very likely that Rome is going to come and crush us. The proclamation here of Jesus as king with an incredibly strong nationalistic symbol wrapped in the religious language of the day was strongly meant to give a shout of, bring it on, Rome. The crowd knows precisely what they're doing. 
they're, they're not sort of just hailing him as king. They're hailing him as king over Caesar. They are begging for a fight. The leaders are worried precisely about this. The crowd has no such concerns. The crowd looks at this man and they think, clearly God is on our side. His steadfast love endures forever. If, if Jesus is here, who is doing all of these miracles, if he is the Messiah, he is the one who has prophesied, why would we worry about Rome? Why are our leaders so weak-kneed when it comes to Rome? Bring on Rome. Who is going to stand up against our God? Who is going to stand up against our Christ? This is exactly what Psalm 118 is saying. All the nations of the world can surround him and God will deliver him and his people. With him on our side, what do we have to fear? This is made even stronger when we remind ourselves that the early church saw this psalm as immensely important about the leaders. We've actually already quoted part of this psalm this morning, but you probably didn't realize it because Peter slips it into his conversation in Acts chapter 4 about the salvation that has come only through Christ. He is the cornerstone. It is not just that the nation stood against this coming king, but there was an insurrection within the people of God for this coming king. In Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, we read that famous verse that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. No one at that time could have quoted Psalm 118 and not known that verse was in there. These people are looking directly at their leaders, and they are saying, we know that you have rejected him, but for all the wrong reasons. And the stone that you have rejected is indeed the cornerstone. It is the very thing that this nation will be built off of. It is not the end of the nation. It is the rebuilding of it. If the crowds indeed understood, and this is indeed what they were thinking, man, they couldn't have been more right. They rightly recognized that this Jesus in all of his power was God's anointed Messiah come to save his people from the yoke of slavery that has been placed upon them to take away the the troubles and the problems that they have experienced in this world and to restore the order of the world and to be as king over his people. They recognize rightly who this Jesus is. Do we? Do we see Jesus this way? Many, many are capable of seeing Jesus as a friend and they're capable of seeing him as a savior. But very few, I say, in America today really want to honestly see him as king. Is he liberating for you? Or do you think that his ways are enslaving? Do you hear his calls for obedience and think it's something to be put up with or is it something to embrace? Do you hear his call for radical sacrifice for his kingdom continually in every single gospel presentation that we have, continually in every one of the four gospels, Jesus is pressing upon people the importance of him and his kingdom. Go read the Sermon on the Mount. Your desire for food and for water are not as important as you searching after the kingdom of God. Do you hear this call for radical sacrifice as something of an honor, or rather is it something to avoid? Do you truly see him as removing a yoke from upon you? Do you truly trust in him to vanquish all of his enemies, finally and fully, one day? Do you really trust that the path that he gives you to walk in this life will be for your good, even though it is filled with difficulties and trials and tribulations. 
recognize what kind of king this Jesus is. He is a liberator. He is a mighty warrior. He is an instrument of God, and he brings with him freedom for his people. All of those things are true. And all of those things are true precisely because he is a king. Your freedom is found in the laws that he gives to you. Your goodness is found in the commandments that he has passed down to you. Hold on to those, follow those, for that is your liberation. That he has died for your sins. He frees you from them so that you might live to God. While the people do this incredibly rightly, they don't have everything down perfectly. Much and probably too much is made of the change that happens between this triumphal entry and what is going to happen as Jesus is crucified. The crowds seemingly turn. People cry out for his crucifixion instead of crying out for him as the king over Israel. Did they all turn so suddenly against him? Did something happen in this week that made them change their minds about who this Jesus was? I'm not sure that John or the other evangelists really want to answer that question. There is a great crowd here, whether that great crowd is matched at the end of the feast by those who are calling for his crucifixion, whether some of them were there, all of them were there, none of them were there, we don't really know. We do know, though, many of this crowd would have been subdued by the events of the coming week. Their hopes of liberation were tied to this Jesus who apparently is giving himself over and quitting before several small accusations. He doesn't seem to be the fighter that they had in mind. And perhaps here, here, is Jesus trying to help them understand what's going to happen. He does something incredibly subtle to recalibrate their views. And that's what we need as well. We need to recalibrate, secondly, our knowledge of the king. We need to recalibrate that. We need to think about that in terms of who Jesus says that he is. Jesus doesn't rebuke them for their zeal. In fact, he seems to embrace it. We're given two very active verbs for what the people do. They find and they take palm branches and they cry out. Jesus does something then very actively as well. It seems like it's passive. They put him on a donkey. But nevertheless, he is the one, John shortcuts all of the story, he is the one who tells his disciples to go out and find the donkey. He gets on the donkey and sits on it and rides it into Jerusalem. Now that is an incredibly subtle sign, but it's something that they should have taken heed of. It's an odd thing, frankly. Had Jesus been somebody who rode on donkeys everywhere, this wouldn't have been such a weird thing. But everywhere else we find he is always walking everywhere. So this would have been a huge change for the disciples to have gone and gotten him something to ride on. Because it was out of the ordinary, because he doesn't have a Pope mobile and he doesn't have a Batmobile, because he doesn't have any sort of conveyance other than his feet typically, it would have been out of the ordinary. And no doubt the disciples would have been thinking, I don't know why he wants a donkey now. And more than that, as they're hailing him as king, why a donkey? Why not a horse or a war horse? Certainly, the Lord, who is capable of multiplying fish and loaves, could find himself a horse somewhere. As many of you know, I'm not a huge fan of horses. I don't, I don't understand why some people love horses. I get it. They were incredibly useful in the 1800s, but they're not anymore. They're just there, right? And people attach the word majestic to them. Don't get that. I, I don't know how they taste, but there are better uses than just looking at a horse. And while we might disagree on all that, we can all agree on one thing. 
Some of you might think horses are majestic. I don't think they are, but all of us can agree donkeys are not majestic. You're not going to go to the Louvre. You're not going to go to the Met and see a picture of Peter I coming back from battle, valiantly riding his steed, Carl the donkey, right? That's not going to happen. He's riding a huge horse, right? That, that props him up and makes him look great. Donkeys do none of this. Why does he ride in on a donkey? It is, of course, to fulfill scripture. That scripture happens to be from the prophet Zechariah, chapter 9. The translation that John gives to it is slightly different, and fear not. Fear not is rejoice greatly in our Old Testaments. Same idea. Don't fear, but rejoice. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow should be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. There are many things that pair well from Zechariah to the prophecy in Psalm 118. There is this idea of not fearing or of crying out that God is doing great things and you should rejoice just like the people in Psalm 118 rejoice. They shout out Hosanna. So now the people are supposed to rejoice because their king is coming. Jerusalem will be delivered. Rome will not have the last word and God himself will destroy any who stand against him. But there are very significant differences between the two. Zechariah doesn't picture an overwhelming throw down with the nations, and he simply doesn't picture the overthrowing of those nations. Rather than them being destroyed by this king, he actually brings the nations in. He doesn't destroy them, but he adopts them. And lest we think that he adopts them simply by saying, well, your sovereignty and your nation can be yours, and my sovereignty and my nation will be mine, so that we will just ignore one another. That is clearly not what's happening, because his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. There is no nation that will not be under this king's rule, but this king is ruling by peace. It says very specifically in those verses that he will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. In the northern kingdom, there will be no instrument of war. In the southern kingdom, there will be no horse to carry that instrument of war. There will be no more war. He will be your king, and he is a peaceful king. He is bringing salvation, but it is one of peace. It is peace not only with the nation in Jerusalem, it is peace with all of the nations across the world. It is not a peace built on detente, but it is a peace built on the fact that Jesus Christ will rule over all of the world. There is, by the way, great irony in this. Because while we might think that Zechariah just got this prophecy from God, that God revealed this to him, and therefore he wrote it down, it is likely that that was true, but also the fact that he simply reads his Old Testament. Not just the Old Testament that he himself is writing as Zechariah, but also the Old Testament that has already been written for him. It is likely that he's pulling this from Genesis 49, specifically from verses 10 through 12, which speaks of Judah this way as Jacob prophesies about his son. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, 
nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. He is the king. He is the one who the kings will come from. That is what the scepter means and the ruler's staff means. He is going to be the king. It will not depart from him until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That sounds a lot like what Zechariah just said. All the nations will come to him and he will rule over all of them. To him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. One verse earlier, Judah is famously called a lion. If you read Jewish mythology, he was indeed a lion. He was chopping down tens of thousands of people with his bare hands. He was a man of war unlike any other man of war. If you've ever read Greek accounts of what Achilles does, the Jewish accounts of Judah fall right in line with that. He was able to jump over men to go behind them, over groups and and dozens of men to go behind them. Clearly, it's mythology, but nevertheless, this is what they thought of him when they called him a lion. He destroyed men. And yet here in Genesis, we have this strong man, this man who is to be a ruler pictured, not riding a war horse, not leading through the blood of men, but through the blood of grapes. He's pictured as a peaceful king, a picture that is given to, given over to provision and blessing and peace and rest. It is a very odd picture. This Judah ought to be great and mighty, a warrior unlike any other, just like John has been picturing Jesus. He has power unlike anybody else in the world has power. He has greatness in himself, unlike anyone else has ever had greatness. If anyone, any one man, can take down the Roman army, it it must have been Jesus. I wonder what the people who are hailing him as king here, knowing what Rome could do, were thinking that he would do as a solitary man in front of Rome. If they could, perhaps they would have thought that he had lasers in his eyes. Maybe they're thinking because he can resurrect people that he was going to perform what Ezekiel 37 said and resurrect an entire army of old Jewish warriors that David and Samson and not Goliath, Goliath wouldn't count in that. Sometimes, man, my tongue gets ahead of my brain. So (laughs) David and, and Joshua and Caleb, all of the great warriors of the past would be resurrected and brought forward and a great army would stand with them. Maybe that's what they thought. Who knows what they thought? But this is not the picture that Jesus is leaving for them here. These tunes are slightly off-key. They're not quite where they ought to be. Jesus won't win our victory by the way that we conceive of might typically winning victories. But he will do so through the laying down of his life. And you're not to see that as an abandonment of his power, but the true use of his power. It's not in slaying tens of thousands of people. It's not in laying waste to his enemies. It's not in overthrowing Rome, although both will happen in time. But Jesus uses all of his power and all of his might and every ounce of energy that he has to restore, to make fresh, to make new, to make things that were not into things that are. All of that power is used to lay down his life. It's not used to rule over men, but to rule over sin. His great power is used to display his obedience to his Father's will to the full and final cost. This is not 
This is not how we consider power to be used. It is not power the way the world considers power. It is deeper, it is more substantial, and quite frankly, it's much more ancient than we typically give to our own worldly thinking about how this power ought to be used. It is the power of God on display in love. It is dying for your enemies, not destroying them. It is triumphing over sin. It is living in full and total obedience to what God has called you to do, even laying down your life for your enemies when you have done nothing wrong. And all of his power is spent toward this end. And if they were going to understand it, if those people who were there were going to understand it, they would have been able to handle what was coming in the next week in the right manner. But everyone missed it, it seems. The disciples, even here, don't understand these things at first, but not until Jesus is glorified does it make sense for them. It is only then when they see Jesus resurrected from the grave that they can make sense of his actions here. They say, oh, that must have been what the donkey was about. He's humble. He's coming in peace. He's not going to destroy the nations the way we thought he was. He is going to win them over through his love, through taking their sin on him. Last week I quoted Patton. You don't win wars by laying down your life for your country, by banking the enemy, do so for his. And Jesus would look at that and he would say, no, not this war. This war will only be won by me laying down my life for all nations. Once we have been rightly recalibrated, we can begin to see Christ's kingdom more clearly. Our victories, our victories, cannot ever be like the world's. We cannot count our victories by the number of triumphs that we have in the world, by our views winning out in the world, by our politicians getting their way in the world, by our enemies laying down under our feet in this world, by getting our last and best word in during a fight, by our ability to hurt others as they hurt us. But like our Christ, our victory is found in our ability to lay down our lives in the love of God for the good of others. That is where our victory is found. John loves this idea more than any other book by far. He loves the word conquer in the book of Revelation. He talks about those who conquer and that those who conquer are conquerors. He, he continually talks about this. Perhaps the greatest time in which he portrays this is in Revelation 12 verses 10 through 11 where he records that this dragon who is about to eat the child being born has heard a, he hears a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Listen to that. The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God. Those aren't small things. Satan has been cast down, and now the full brunt of God's authority and all of his salvation and all of his power are made known. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. So he accuses them. He tells God of the things that they have done, but God ignores him now and finally casts him out because his accusations have no more grounding because Christ has died for us. He goes on to say, They have, the people of earth, those who are being accused, they have conquered him. Which is quite an amazing statement. We have conquered him. Not just that Jesus has conquered him. Not just that the angels in heaven have conquered him. We conquer him by the blood of the Lamb 
and by the word of their testimony. What does that mean? By the word of their testimony, they loved not their lives, even to death. For John, to conquer is to die. It is to die faithful. It is to do what Jesus did, to spend all of your power and all of your might in obedience to God, come what may. According to John, you conquer not through fists, you don't conquer through bullets, you don't conquer through swords, not chariots, not horses. You conquer by loving others and laying down your life for them. Friends, there is never a day when you don't need to be reminded of this. Because this is not at all the picture of conquering that is given to us by the world. They hint at it every now and then. And in their shame, moments later, they revert back to exactly the way that they always think. That victories are won by triumphing over your enemies, by their destruction, or their removal, or their disavowal, or turning them back against what they believed in. This is not the way of Christ. We recalibrate what it means to be victorious because we have rightly been recalibrated by what it means to follow a victorious king. We give our lives for those who need us to. That means leading our lives for Christ and under his authority. Thirdly, we must repent of our mistrust of the king. We need to repent of our mistrust of the king. While all of this is going on much below the surface, something well at surface level is happening, and the Pharisees look to one another in verse 19, and they say, you see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone out to him. This is exactly what the Pharisees feared. You have a group of people now claiming that there's another king coming in, and they know what that sounds like. The word king and Caesar don't sound the same to us, but for people in Rome, they meant nearly the same thing, or at least they implied the same thing. This man is being set up as a king over Caesar. And once that happens, Rome will not allow it to stand, and they will come in and they will crush it. And the Pharisees are standing back saying, we didn't do enough. You see, all of this dragging your feet around, it's doing nothing. All of the world is going out to them. Like Caiaphas earlier, they don't even understand what it is they're saying. And dude, indeed, all of the world is going out to him. It's not just the people of Jerusalem. It's not just the local nations. That's clearly what they meant. There's a huge crowd going out to him. They're exaggerating. All the world is going out to him. But little did they know that all the world would go out to him. That the call of the gospel would go out to every nation and every tribe and every tongue and every language. And all who is God's elect from before the foundation of the world would come to him. They didn't know that. These are religious leaders. They lived under the appearance of piety. They seemed to be those who were zealous for the law and for the things of God. They seemed to know scripture. They seemed to believe fervently. They seemed to be filled with spiritual truth and guides in that truth. But they truly did not have any real faith in God. These people in the crowd did. They knew if this man is from God, then who could possibly stand against us if he is the coming Messiah and King? But these people don't even think that God can stand up to Rome. Rome wasn't built in a day, but God can demolish it in a half a second. They have no faith. They are the spies who are told to go up and look into the land so that God can overthrow them, so they can see the goodness of the land. And all they can do is report back how difficult it's going to be and that they shouldn't go, and they lead the people into disobedience. 
They are the entire Israelite army who hear the taunts and the relentless mocking of Goliath hour after hour and day after day and are unwilling to do anything about it. They are nothing less than the weak King Jehoiakim, who's nothing but a puppet for Egypt, who funnels all of his people's money back to Egypt for the hope that Egypt might protect him. They seem to be the ones who should fight. They seem to be the ones who should lead. They seem to be the ones who should act first, but they can't because they don't trust the Lord their God. Even as one as mighty as Jesus is presented to them in their very midst, even as one as Jesus attested as strongly as he is that he is from God, that he is doing the work of God, that he is here for the people to help them and to guide them in all good things, even he will not earn their trust. Friends, I beg of you, don't distrust this king. His power and his might are there for your good. Listen to his words, believe in his victory, and understand his sacrifice. They're here for your good, not your harm. They're here for your happiness and your satisfaction, not to thwart your good or to bring trial upon you. And if we're honest, we all have moments like this. We all reject this king. All of us do at times, perhaps even today. We reject his rule when we disobey a clear command given to us because we don't think it's good for us. We reject his goodness when we doubt that that command is actually good for us. We reject his sacrifice when we think that we are good enough as we are. What this calls for is nothing less than repentance. May God grant us that gift when we sin. And in doing so, he will be faithful and just because Jesus' sacrifice was that good because his life was acceptable before God, because he died for our sins. If we trust in him, he will always be faithful and just to forgive us when we fail. Friends, this is a great and powerful king. He has shown himself victorious over all of our foes. So let us follow him, heeding his commands, trusting in the victory that he has already secured for us. We're living on the other side of the cross. He's already risen from the grave. He's already demonstrated his victory over all these things. All it requires from us is to place our our weak and feeble hands in his so that he might do what he wants to do. The church will not be thwarted by the gates of hell, not because you are great, but because he is. Your victory rests in the fact that Jesus has already secured it. That's why all you need to do is continue in faith. Let us confess this victory even today. As we proclaim Jesus is the Lion of Judah who is the powerful king, who won a victory by laying down his life. May he rule always, for he will always rule well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us such a great and majestic king. The kings of the earth use their people for their own ends in order to fill up their own desires. They use their labor and the lives of their subjects to make themselves great. But our king, the true and better king, does no such thing. Rather, he uses his labor and he uses his life to give us life. He sacrifices himself so that we might know what is good and filled with joy, so that we might even know you as our Father. May all power and worthiness and praise and glory and fame be ascribed to Jesus Christ, our King. We pray this for our good and for his glory. Amen.